have a seat. Amen. It's good to see everyone this morning. If you are a, a guest with us, as Brian said, we're going through the, the book of Exodus. We study it uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're covering chapter 18 this morning. And uh, it's finally a story we can relate to. It's a family member named Jethro. I'm sure you have somebody in your family like that. I'm just glad that his name is not Jimbo. Some of you would not be listening this morning. You wouldn't pay attention. You'd be tuning out. Uh, I've studied this passage for years and, and, and loved this, this text. I don't, I don't think I studied it. I know I didn't study it in the way that we're going to see it this morning, or at least I didn't see the things that we're going to see this morning. For years I, I taught this chapter, especially the second half of this chapter, uh, and the leadership principles that are clearly there, uh, the organizational principles that are clearly there. I taught a, a leadership class uh, for a long time, and, and this would be a key text that we would look at. But I think that's secondary to the text. I don't think leadership and organizational theory are the primary em emphasis of this text. I think those are secondary implications of this text. Uh, this text is a pivotal chapter in the transition uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, the first half of the book of Exodus is all about God entering into a relationship with his people, rescuing them for relationship. And the first half of chapter 18 is all about celebrating God's past greatness and grace. And then the second half of chapter 18 is all about organizing ourselves for living under his rule and living out of an overflow from his past greatness and grace. The rest of the book of Exodus will be about that. So in a, in a real sense, chapter 18 summarizes the whole book, the two halves of the book of Exodus. God's past greatness and grace living in response to that greatness and grace under his rule and under his authority. Rescued for relationship, living in right relationship under him. This chapter will divide really in two halves along those, those lines, and it's so important of a chapter. It's a watershed moment in the book of, of Exodus. If you look at the first 17 chapters, we saw over and over and over again God's rescue and where they're standing, it'll say it in the text, they're standing at the mountain of God. Next chapter, chapter 20, that's Mount Sinai. That's the, where they receive the commands of God. So you can see it really clearly in Exodus 18 and, and, and how it points to the two halves of this book. And so we're going to let that be uh, how we understand this uh, chapter and understand these, these verses here. And we're going to look, as the text does in these first 12 verses, at God's past greatness and grace. And what we see is it comes in the form of Jethro and in what Moses testifies to him, shares with him, and then what Jethro confesses and, and celebrates. And then we're going to see Jethro's wisdom. The wisdom of organizing yourselves, centering yourselves around the commands, the teachings of God, and how that ought to be the fuel for which and by which we live and then, the good news of this text, we're going to see who this points to, who Jethro points to. So those are our three points this morning. Let's look at the first one in the first 12 verses here, celebrating the greatness and grace of God. Again, we see this in three ways. One is how Jethro comes, what Moses testifies to, and then Jethro in his response and what he celebrates. So how does Jethro come? Well, first and foremost, the text tells us Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And quickly, 
we need to remember, this is not the first time we've encountered Jethro. We encountered him in chapter 3 and 4. His name was Rule there, and it's also called, he's also called Jethro. His name means friend of God. So he's coming as a friend of God, but he's also coming as the priest of Midian. Who are the, where is Midian? Who are the Midianites? Midian is east of the Red Sea, and the Midianites are descendants of Abraham. Genesis chapter 25. Midian was the third son of Abraham, and he was sent to live in the east, away from the son of promise, Isaac. And in Midian, these people develop, and they're aware of God. We're not quite sure if they're God-fearers, God-worshippers. They're certainly God-aware, God-friendly. Friend of God is the name of Jethro, friend of Yahweh. And what we see is that Jethro comes as a, a, a family member, a person of peace, and he comes blessing and praising God. That's going to be some of the first things out of his mouth. He's going to praise God, celebrate God. That's what he's coming because he's heard, it says in verse 1, what God has done. And now he's coming to Moses and he's going to celebrate those things. He also comes reuniting family. And that's an important point. He comes reuniting Moses' wife and Moses' two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And both of these names are important. They're given to us in the text to remind us. It's yet another flag on the ground reminding us of all that God has done. Gershom means, I was a sojourner, but now I've found a home with God. God is my home. And that's one thing that, that is happening. But Eliezer means, God is my help. So, in other words, when Jethro shows up, he's reuniting Moses' family who've been with him, his, Moses' wife and two sons, but he comes with a message with those two sons, coming with God is my help who gave me a home. That's a reminder to us, the reader, as we read this text. There's another way, though, he's reuniting family, and this is important. It's a longer study. It's not what we're going to look at today. It's worth studying, though. If you remember Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel. Where was Cain sent after that moment? He was sent east of Eden. So he was sent to the east. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Do you remember where Ishmael was sent? Away from the son of promise. Ishmael was sent to the east. Abraham had a third son, Midian. He was sent to the east, which developed the people of Midian, Midianites, east of the Red Sea. If you remember, uh, Israel had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Where was Esau sent? He was sent to the east. What we have in all of those cases are these family members that maybe because of sin or the brokenness of sin or the tragedy of sin are sent away to the east. And here a person from the east is coming and reuniting with the other family line. The line of the third son of Adam, Seth. The line of the first son of Abraham, Isaac. The line of the first son of Israel, Jacob, what we have are these two family lines where there was brokenness, there's now unity. There's being, that something's happening here as Jethro shows up on the scene. Unity is happening, reunion is happening. That which was broken is being reunited and made whole. So what we see immediately is in how Jethro comes, we're hearing about God's grace, about God's greatness. We're hearing about his faithfulness to his people. We're hearing this person of peace, this friend of God that's bringing reunion 
to that which has been separated or that which has been broken. It's hinted at in the text. It's clearly something's going on here. But it gets even more explicit in the text in what Moses says to Jethro in verse 8. And what we see is that Moses is explicit in rehearsing God's past faithfulness, God's past greatness, God's past grace. In verse 8, he says, it says, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had, what's the word there? Delivered them. It's an important word. It's repeated multiple times in the text. So we have this big umbrella statement. Moses recounted to Jethro all that the Lord had done for Israel. And then we have these two specific halves of that statement. All the hardships and how the Lord delivered them. And I think those two halves are important. They they summarize this big idea of what God has done. And Moses, I love this about it. Moses does not hide the hardships. He He doesn't only highlight the good times. He doesn't only highlight the deliverance, the the greatness of God, the grace of God. He highlights the hardships. Hardships are a part of the rescue story. Hardships are a part of Moses' story. Hardships are a part of your story. And the hardships only serve to highlight God's greatness and grace. Paul says that it's in our weakness that God's grace is displayed or made known. It's in our weakness that his power to rescue and deliver and his grace are displayed in the world. If we ignore the hardships, if we ice over all of the hardships, then we're also downplaying the magnificent, amazing, miracle rescue that God performs in this text and in our own lives. So Moses re- rehearses. Remember, we were crying out desperate. We were dead. We were as good as being dead. We were being ground into the ground by Pharaoh and by Egypt. We were as good as dead in Egypt. And, and then God rescued us. God came in and he delivered us. And he uses that word delivered. That word delivered is important. It means to rescue out from under oppression or rule or to spare someone's life. What Moses is recounting is, we were as good as dead, but God spared our lives. God was gracious to us. He was kind to us. He was merciful to us. He was so generous and and gracious to us. He rescued us and gave us life where there was no life. We were dead. What's Moses doing? He's, He's recounting all of God's greatness and grace in rescuing them. He spared us even though we were dead. He spared us even though we deserved death. God spared us. So we hear about God's greatness and grace and how Jethro comes. We hear it explicitly in what Moses says, but we get an even greater taste of it in what Jethro does in response. Specifically what Jethro says in response. He celebrates and he confesses. He's astonished and blown away by God's greatness and grace. Look at what it says in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced. That's an important word. Rejoiced. That word is not just, he was so happy he heard the good news about God. That's not what that means. It means Jethro got the heebie-jeebie goosebumps, hair on the back of his neck, was physically moved by what he heard. 
He was melted. He was moved. He was astonished. He was shocked. That's what that word means. I can't believe what I'm hearing. More than that, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I heard about the stories, verse 1, but now I see, Moses, you're alive, and all one million plus Israelites are standing here before me. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And then what does he do? He He rejoices for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them, there's that word again, out from under the hand of the Egyptians. What's Jethro marveling at? What what is he astonished by? What is he so physically moved by? Emotionally and physically moved. It's moving from his head down to his heart and out into his actions. He is moved by something. What is it that he is marveling at? What is he personally impacted by? We hear it in verse 10. Jethro blessed or praised, he said, praise be the Lord who has delivered you. There it is again. Out from under the hand, out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered you, the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. What is Jethro amazed by? What is he astonished by? What is he melted and moved by? What is he physically experiencing this moment that is so astonishing and shocking to him? He's blown away. And he says it in the text that out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of the ironclad hands of Pharaoh, and out of the ironclad hands of the Egyptians, and out from under their oppressive dominion, which is what it it means there when he says out from under the hands, I cannot believe that you're standing here right now. You were as good as dead. He's reiterating what Moses has already said. You should be dead. You were in the ironclad double grip of the greatest military power in history at this moment. You should be dead. You you were dead. You, how are you standing right here? It's not possible that you walked out of that. It's not possible that any of this happened. Unless, unless Yahweh is Yahweh. Unless Yahweh really is the one true God. Unless Yahweh did it. There's no way you did it, Moses. There's no way the Israelites did it. Yahweh did it. And look at what he says in verse 11. He confesses. Now I know. That's a different, that's not just I know about. That's now I know. Now I feel. Now I, now I'm, I have experienced. Now I know that the, that the Lord is greater than all gods. Not just Pharaoh. Not just Egypt. But remember all those gods that Pharaoh and Egypt worshipped? That plurality of gods that they worshipped that were so powerful and so mighty and so terrifying to everyone? Yahweh's greater. Now I know. Now I I, I know, not just simply by the information, but by the reality of what I'm seeing with my own eyes, what I'm hearing with my own ears. I know it's true. Yahweh is the one true God. This is not... Dissimilar. This is very similar to so many other confessions in the Old Testament. One example, Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a, a pagan king, and he was covered in leprosy. 
and he wanted to be cleansed, and he came to Elijah, and he wanted to be cleansed, and Elijah told him to go wash in, the, in this river, and Naaman was outraged. How dare you? The rivers where I'm from are so much greater. What, what are you doing telling me to go wash in that river? That's just absurd, and it requires faith. It requires him to humble himself. He humbles himself, and he's cleansed. And his confession in 2 Kings 5 is this, Behold, I know. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And what's amazing is in response to that, what, what does Naaman do? It's not just information that comes into his head. It's information that moves past his head, down to his heart, melts him, changes him, transforms him. It moves him to outward action. It says in the text in 2 Kings 5, he responds, so accept now a present from your service, servant. So now accept this gift from me. I, can't, I cannot believe that I'm standing here cleansed. I cannot, I, I cannot believe this. There is no other God but God. Now I respond. I, I can't help but give my life to him. Here's my stuff. Here's my life. Here's my everything. Here's my words. Here's my actions. What happens to Jethro in this text? He's moved to the same thing. He, he moves to action. Verse 12, Jethro worships. And Jethro, Moses' Moses's father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And they have a meal. And they share a covenant-celebrating meal together. He's floored by what he's heard. He's floored by what he's seen. He's moved by what he's experienced in this moment. It's physical. It's not just informational. He's changed. He's, something is going on here, and he can't help but respond in action. He can't help but respond in celebration. It's exactly what half this room did yesterday as you watched football, college football. For your team, whatever your team is, you were moved to action. You were moved to say for that 18-year-old throwing a touchdown to another 18-year-old, you at least did that. If we will do that for an 18-year-old throwing a football to an 18-year-old, how ought we respond to an infinitely holy God who rescued dead sinners? That's, that's what's going on here. We're seeing this rehearsal of God's past greatness and grace. I cannot believe what he's done. I can't believe what he's done in our lives. I can't believe what he's doing. And they worship. They, they react. They respond. Worship is the natural overflow of a glad heart. They are celebrating in this moment. At this point, whatever knowledge or faith Jethro may have had before, he absolutely knows now. Yahweh is God. There is no other. And that leads to the transition in the text in verse 13. It seems like these are two disjointed halves of a book or halves of a chapter. But as I mentioned, they go intimately together. You can't have now live rightly before God or organize yourselves to receive the commands of God without God's past grace and God's past greatness without his rescue and that's where we go in this text we move from his greatness and grace to organizing ourselves in the text organizing themselves to receive his commands to orient themselves around his teaching 
So everything in this second half is about wisdom and preparation for right living before God. And we, again, we see it in, in three ways in this text. Moses' answer to Jethro's question, Jethro's instruction or his wisdom that he gives, and Jethro's final summary analysis. So let's see Moses' answer to Jethro's question. Jethro shows up, he asks, he observes, and he asks a perceptive question. In verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge. That's another important word in the text. You'll see it in a number of different ways. It means to decide. It's not, uh, it's not similar to or, or like, what exactly like what we have in, in our minds as a judge today in deciding between a, a prosecution and a defense. Though this is the establishment of their legal system, this is not exactly what Moses is doing in this moment. Though that might have happened and it, it might occur in some cases, it's simply deciding. It's helping two people that have, have been are at odds over something and, and helping them decide. The people were rescued for relationship and now they're trying to orient their lives around the instruction of God, the commands of God, living before God. But they don't know how to do that yet. They don't know what exactly that looks like. They, and Moses is helping them decide. He's giving them wisdom and helping them decide between two things or helping two people reconcile or possibly sometimes literal cases where maybe someone has wronged another person. He's deciding between two things. But what's he deciding upon? What's he using as his standard? He's using the word as we'll see. It says the next day in verse 13, Moses sat to judge the people and the people uh, he, to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening, all day, every day, million plus of them standing in line, all the way out and around Mount Sinai, coming back again to get Moses' wisdom, to decide between these cases, to ask wisdom and how are we supposed to live before God. God's rescued us. We want to live rightly before him in response to his grace. How do we do that? What does that look like? In verse 14, Mo- Moses Father-in-law asked this, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answers this way in verse 15 and 16, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me. To inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make them know, this is the key, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So people come to me and they ask questions and I'm helping them decipher, I'm giving them wisdom and specifically I'm trying to give them wisdom according to the commandments of God, the instruction of God, according to God and how he would have us live rightly before him. So Moses' intent, Moses' motive, Moses' heart is to root the people, center the people around the word, but his method is wrong. His approach is wrong because he's still at the center. Everything hinges on him. There's a bottleneck on him. He is the only one that knows the word as he does, and he, he is not disseminating that word to the others. He's simply deciding every single decision. Instead, Jethro says there's another way. There's a better way than you being the answer. There's a better way than you being the center of everything. Your motive is right. The, 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 the content is right. It's the word. But your method is wrong. You being at the center, there's a better way 
Moses. He comes and gives wisdom as every father-in-law does. He gives wisdom and he says in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. It's not good. This is intended to raise a little radar in our minds saying, when did I hear the last time that was, that, what, this is not good. It's in Genesis chapter 2 when God says of Adam, it's not good that he is alone. Why? Because he doesn't have a helpmate to come alongside him to accomplish the task that I have given him, which is to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That the two together will accomplish more than the one. It's not good that he is in isolation. And here we hear it again. What you are doing is not good. And why? Jethro says, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. Moses, with you at the center, everything is going to get crushed and ground into the ground. You are going to get crushed and ground into the ground. They are going to lose their patience. Everything can't depend on you. Everything can't hinge on you, Moses. Everything can't center on you, Moses. You are not able to do it alone. This is the wisdom that Jethro gives. The task is too large and too heavy with you at the center. With you at the center, you will be crushed and die. With you making all the decisions by yourself, you will be crushed under. And then he goes on in verse 19 to 20. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Before we jump to the organizational wisdom that's coming in the, in the next few verses, which we love to do, we, especially those of us that are type A, strategic thinkers and, and organizers, we love to leap to that. We cannot miss what, Mo, what Jethro is doing in Moses' life in this moment. He's affirming the content. He's affirming the heart, the motive, what you're trying to do in, in centering the people around the statutes of God, the law of God, helping them make, make them live according to the law of God, the commands of God. That's right, Moses. That's good, Moses. Keep mediating, Moses. Keep mediating, representing the people to God and God to the people. Keep serving the people. Keep leading the people. Keep leading them to the word. Keep orienting them around the word. How would God have you live? How would God have you respond? How would God have you reconcile? How would God have us live in this moment? Keep doing that, Moses. That's good, Moses. He affirms the content but then he says in his brilliant wisdom in verse 21, but don't do it alone. Do it with wisdom. Instead, look, he says in verse 21, look for able men from all the people, in the key phrase, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge or decide among the people at all times. Here's a question that comes up. Here's a question we have to ask. 
Because we love, again, we love to jump ahead to this organizational principle. We, 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 we even love the characteristics that we're supposed to look for. Men who fear God, let them judge the people. What, by what standard? How, what decision? What's their standard of decision-making? What standard are they supposed to live by? What standard are they supposed to direct the people to? What standard are they supposed to help decide between these cases, whether it's among the thousands or the hundreds or the fifties or the tens? By what standard are they supposed to decide? What standard are they supposed to lead? By what standard are they supposed to judge? The same standard that Moses is trying to teach all the people to live by. The very word of God. The very command of God, the very instructions of God. The first clue is men who fear God. Sometimes we get hung up on that phrase, fear God. To fear God means to revere Him and to stand in awe of Him. And and it also means to simply obey Him. In other words, I recognize that He is God and I am not. That He is right and I am not. Therefore, I align myself according to His commands and His teachings. I submit to His rule and His reign in my life. Find men that are committed to that, Moses. Find men that want to align themselves underneath the rule and the reign of God. Not live independent from the rule and reign of God. Not live isolated on their own. Not live according to their own rule and their own standard. No, find men that will submit to God, that want to do that. And the standard by which they will judge is the very commands that you want to teach. The very statutes, the very laws that you want to teach. Find men and multiply yourself, Moses. Multiply in them a delight in the Word and the commands of God. Multiply in them a knowledge of the Word. Multiply in them this love for living according to the standards and the precepts and the commands and the statutes and the laws of God. In that way, you will not be doing it alone. You will be doing it with others. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. Again, how do they decide? By the word. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Here's the thing that comes up in this text. When you read this text and and this wisdom that's given, and, and many of you may be like me, this just makes sense. This just is intuitive. This is just natural. Like, why does Moses need this wisdom? Why does he need to be told this? The same reason you and I need to be told this. I think Moses is tempted in either one of two directions, maybe both, because we're often conflicted individuals, and we can be tempted in one way and then completely reverse and go the other way. I think Moses is tempted in one of two ways. The first, I think when he's crying out, uh, they come to me. Why do I do it? They come to me. They come to me. I think it's possibly a cry of despair. In other words, I'm doing the best I can here. I'm trying to teach the Word. I'm trying to, to, to help them center their lives around the Word. But, but I'm on my own here. What am I going to do? That cry of despair is misdirected despair. It should have been, God, I don't have the resources to do this. There's a million plus people staring me in the face and they want my wisdom. I don't have the wisdom. You have the wisdom. I don't have the strength for this. You have the strength for this. I don't know how to make this decision. 
I don't know what to say in this case, but you do. Instead of despairing, I can't do it, he should have been saying, I can't do it, but you can. And that's what we've been learning in these previous experiences with Israel in the wilderness. They cry out, they grumble, they complain, they quarrel with God. Instead of crying out to God to come to the rescue, they cry out at God. And here what we see, I think, is a possible temptation that's in the heart of every one of us, every leader, in in, in Moses, and every heart in, in general. And that's the cry of despair and the cry of, I'm doing the best I can here. And Jethro's wisdom speaks lovingly but painfully. The best you can will lead to death. The best you can will crush you under the weight of the burdens that you're carrying. The best you can will have a million people trampling over you and they will be trampled over in the process. You need wisdom, Moses. You need to look away. You need to dethrone yourself, decenter yourself from this equation. Yes, rooted in the word, but rooted in the word that's rooted on God, in God, under God. Center him, everyone around him, everyone around his commands. I think the other temptation is in the other direction. This one is sometimes more easily visible and observable. One is the cry of despair. The other is the cry of arrogance. Why are you doing this, Moses? Why, does everybody, why, why is everybody centered around you? Because they come to me. Because I'm the one. Because I'm the one with the commands. I'm the one that's in charge. I know what's going on. I'm the one. In other words, I'm essential to this operation. If I'm not here, who else is going to do it? If I'm not here, who else is going to teach? Who else is going to help? Who else is going to lead the people? Who else is going to make these decisions? It's the cry of arrogance. It's, it's an it's a arrogant claim. It, it's Moses possibly a temptation is seeing that he is essential to the equation and without him the whole operation fails. And, and we see it possibly in Jethro's question. Why do you stand alone? Why do the people stand around you? Why are you at the center, Moses? If we aren't given to despair, we often see ourselves at the center of the story as the linchpin is essential and upon everything, upon which everything is built. Ultimately, this is pride. And, Mo- and Jethro's wisdom speaks up. Moses, that's going to lead you to death. You will be crushed under that arrogance, that pride. You think you're the center? You think you're essential to the equation? You think that everything depends on you? No, 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 no. No, my son. No. You are not essential to this equation. You think that if, if you're not there, God's going to go, oh no, what am I going to do? You're completely delusional. I think that these two temptations, or maybe both at the same time, back and forth, I think these are at the heart of what Moses is is responding here. And Jethro is calling him to a better way. Both of those responses lead to death. Lead to Moses being crushed under the heavy burden of the task. Lead to the people despairing and frustrated and impatient and not equipped with the very word of God. I think you see it also in the, lastly in Jethro's summary or his final analysis. So we see the negative rationale for why Moses should listen to this wisdom in verse 18. He says clearly, what you're doing is not good. 
You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it, Moses. Either multiply your knowledge into other men that will multiply their knowledge of the word into other people. Either multiply yourself, disciple others to disciple others. Either multiply yourself with the instructions of God. Either center yourself around the word and lead others to center themselves around the word and let them lead others to center around the word or you will be crushed. And then we see the positive rationale in verses in 22b to 23. So, in 22b, so, or therefore, if you do this, it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. And then 23, it's unbelievable, it's so beautiful. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. What's Jethro offering Moses? A way of his heavy burdens being lightened. A way of the people's heavy burdens being lifted. And the way of peace. He's not offering him do more, try harder. He's offering him trust. He's offering him hope. He's offering him rest. He's offering him peace. He says in verse 23, if you do this, do what? Center the people on the commands of God. Orient the people. Organize the people around the commands of God. Reflecting back on his greatness and grace. Organize them on his instructions so that they live daily based on his instructions. Feeding on his instructions. Nourished by his instructions. Just living by orienting around his instructions. And and orient them in this way so that his word is central. Orient them in this way so that his commands are central. Do you see how this is preparing them for what's to come in 19 and 20? But more than that, he says, if you do this, center everyone, their lives around the commands of God, he says, God will direct you, which is an odd phrase. It sounds redundant. Look to God's directions and God's directions will direct you or God will direct you. It means center around the commands of God and you will find his commands are a delight. You will find yourself living by his commands. Orient yourselves under his rule and you will find his rule as a joy. Orient yourselves under his direction and you will find his direction guiding you. You will find his direction feeding you. You will find his commands nourishing you. You will find your joy In his commands. And then he adds two more things. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. I'll ask it again. Or I'll make an observation and ask again. Every time we study this text, many times when it's taught, we, we just gravitate to the second half. And we gravitate to the leadership principles, the organizational theory that's in here. And that's secondary. That's certainly in here. But it's secondary. The question is... What are they supposed to organize themselves around? By what standard are they supposed to live by? And it's becoming clear and evident by what Moses says, what Jethro says. It's the word. Center your lives around the commands of God, the statutes of God. Do this and you will endure and experience peace. Have you ever been to the doctor and the doctor look at you and say, by the way you're living, 
if you don't change some things, you're going to be dead in, and he inserts some kind of date. That's what Jethro's doing. If you keep doing this, you're going to be ground under. You're going to be crushed. You're going to die. But if you listen, if you submit, if you humble yourself, you will live, you will endure, and the people will find peace. The very next verse, in verse 27, it says that Moses, I'm sorry, verse, not in verse 27, 24, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. He submitted, he humbled, he, he listened, and the people, he led the people to do this. That's what we see in 19 and in 20. Do this, Moses, and you will live. Do this, Moses, and you will be like the, the man in Psalm chapter 1, the, the man who delights in the commands of God. Think about that phrase for a second. Do you delight in people telling you what to do? No, you don't. No one does. But the man who delights in the commands of God, in other words, finds his commands not burdensome, but light, joy-filled, he is like a tree planted next to streams of water, and he bears fruit in season. Jeremiah 17 takes it even further. The man who trusts in flesh, the man who trusts in himself, he's like tumbleweed in a desert. That's descriptive. But the man who trusts in the Lord, who makes God his delight, who makes his teaching his delight, who submits to his rule and his way and his commands, he's like a stream planted next to water. And Jeremiah goes further. His roots go deep and they go out, and that man is without fear in times of drought. He's without anxiety when the heat comes. In fact, that man will produce fruit not simply in season, but also out. Always because he'll find life and nourishment in the commands of God with his life centered around him. Moses is being crushed under the weight of doing everything on his own. Israel is being crushed alongside him. Jethro calls Moses to a better way, to a way of peace, to a way of life. Jethro's not asking him to do more, try harder. He's asking him to submit and to find this wisdom as wisdom of life and wisdom of peace and organize everyone around this wisdom, everyone around the word, everyone around the statutes and the command of God. That's unbelievable wisdom for, for Israel. That's, that's unbelievable wisdom for us. But this points us to someone else. Jethro is pointing us forward to someone better He's pointing us forward to Jesus. Think about everything that you've heard. Think about how Jethro came. Think about what you've heard and, and Jesus in light of it. Think about how Jethro came. He came as a breath of fresh air in the desert. He came offering praise to God, celebrating the goodness of God, the greatness of God. He came worshiping. He came praising God. He came as a person of peace. He came reuniting that which was broken. Don't you see it? He's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is not a person of peace. He's the prince of peace. He's not simply reuniting families that were separated. He's reuniting and reweaving all that is broken. He's coming 
is a breath of fresh air in an oasis, in a desert oasis. Think about how Jethro came celebrating God's greatness and grace. How did Jesus come? He came as the light of the world, the life of the world. He came pointing everyone to the Father. He came pointing everyone to the Heavenly Father that loves us. He came pouring out grace upon grace. He came displaying God's greatness and grace. He came embodying God's greatness and grace. Think about how Jethro came. He came as a priest with this elder authority proclaiming wisdom that everyone must submit to. He came as a priest. That's clear in the text. How do, what are you talking about elder authority? He came with this authority 12 times in the text. It says Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. Why do I need to be told that 12 times? Because it's important. He, it, we're being told that he has some kind of authority as he comes. Moses, how does he go out? He bows before Jethro. He, he kisses him. He, he, he goes out to him. He's showing deference to him. He's showing submission to him. He's recognizing Jethro has authority here. And what does Jethro do? He comes proclaiming wisdom. He, Jethro points us forward to Jesus who is our prophet priest and king with ultimate authority calling us to submit to submit to what calling us to repent repent of what of our sinful rebellion and rejection of him and to submit to what the good news of the gospel mark chapter 1 verse 15 jesus came with this elder authority and priestly care and profound truth. He is the personification of wisdom. He is wisdom itself. He is, Proverbs 8, the one who is there before the foundations of the world, who saw God cast the stars into the sky, who was there naming each one, was part of the creation of all things. He is wisdom himself. And then lastly, think about how Jethro came as a wise counselor, offering a way to peace. What was the wisdom that he called Moses to do? Moses, decenter your life. Remove you from the center of the equation. Stop being a bottleneck to this whole thing. Stop, stop with your ironclad grip on control on everything. Let go, Moses, of every of all your control. Decenter yourself. Center everything on the word. Center everything on the commands of God. Center everything on God Himself. How does Jesus come? Jesus comes in wisdom. He comes offering us wisdom and he call, comes wooing us, inviting us to come home, to let go of our ironclad grip on our lives, to let go of the ironclad grip of control of every single minute detail of our lives. To let go of our heavy burdens. To let go of our intense toil and labor. And to take on ourselves his light yoke. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor. All who toil, all who strive, all who are trying to control every single detail. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, heavy burden, crushed down under the heavy weight of all the million plus burdens that you carry. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is, is the thing they put on the oxen, burst of, uh, beast of burden as they would plow, and it would be tethered to a farmer. A yoke was a, was a farmer's rule. A yoke was a farmer's reign. A yoke was a farmer's authority over those animals. And Jesus says, take my yoke. Take my rule. Take my commandments. Take my statutes. Take my expectations. Take my leadership. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. If I take his yoke on me, what's he going to ask me to do? What's he going to do? His commands are burdensome. He's going to crush me. He's going to grind me into the ground. No, 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 no. His commands, his teaching, his love, his leadership, his guidance, his instruction is gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my rule, my authority, my command is easy and my burden is light. Are you living in despair? Maybe the despair that Moses had, maybe. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm doing everything I know what to do here. I'm trying to live by the word. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I am trying. Let go of your burden. Let go of your rule. Let go of your best. I'm trying my best. Your best will get you ground into the ground dead. But Jesus' best, (laughs) Jesus' best is gracious and kind and merciful and gentle and lowly and wonderful and patient and unbelievable. Are you, do you see yourself, are you arrogantly seeing yourself as the center of the story with all the answers? Everything depends on me. I've got to do it. If, if, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to solve the problem? I've got to solve the problem. I'm the solution. I'm my rescue. I'm the fix. Isn't that so crushing? When you have to bear the weight of the authority of the entire world, when you have to have the answers for truth for the entire world, when everyone else is wrong and you're the only one that's right and no one's living according to your rules, Isn't that so tiring? Isn't that so just crushing utterly into the ground? Relinquish control. Jesus invites you to relinquish control, the white-knuckle grip of control in your life, to relinquish that heavy burden that you're carrying, all million-plus of them. Your way is not the way to peace in life. It's the way of death. Not so with Jesus. His commands are not burdensome, John says in 1 John. His rule is not crushing. His rule is loving and kind, gentle and lowly. His way is life and rest. Maybe that's neither of you. Maybe you have celebrated the past great, greatness and grace of God. Maybe, maybe you have crossed that threshold and looked back and gone, unbelievable, I cannot believe all that God's done. I cannot believe that he's so kind and so merciful to me, a sinner, that he rescued me, a wretch. I cannot believe how he did it and what he did and all that he's done to carry me to this point. Then don't become a grace 
graduate. Don't graduate from that reflection. Don't lose sight to that reflection and then say, oh, well, now i got to go figure it out how to live. You never graduate from that. We're told in the Scriptures constantly to go back to that, to rehearse that, to remember that. That's the fuel that you're looking for to fight the million-plus heavy burdens that you're facing. That's the fuel that you're looking for to, to stay in the fight in your broken relationships, whether that be at work or at home or with your children. That's the fuel. That's the strength. That's the power. That is what enables you to even have the thought, how do I live now rightly before you, God? Have you celebrated the greatness and grace of God in Jesus? Have you submitted to his gentle rule? Have you centered your life on Jesus, the living word? Then don't be a grace graduate. Be a disciple of grace. Be a student of grace. Mine the depths of his word and be overwhelmed and over, overjoyed every single day, every day anew by his greatness and grace Center your lives on his commands, on the person of the word, Jesus Christ. And then, in the wisdom of this text, don't keep it to yourself. Multiply that joy. Multiply that understanding. Multiply that love of the word, that astounding joy at what he's done. Multiply centering your life. Do it in your family. Do it in your homes. Do it in your, in your community. Do it with others. Center their lives. Lead them to center their lives on the word as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. It's so rich and so deep, so wide. So much that we could cover. So many angles. So much connecting dots that are in this text that we didn't even touch. Lord, I'm astounded. I'm blown away. I'm astonished that you would rescue me, a sinner. While I was lifting my fist to you, while I was angrily defying you, you died for me. Please don't ever let me graduate from that. Lord, in response to that great grace, I want to give you my life. I want to submit to you. I want to orient my life around you. I want to live by your rule. Your rule is life. Your rule is peace. Your rule is light. Your rule is where life is found. Lord, I've tried so many times to take things into my hands and it crushes and crumbles beneath the weight. Father, help us see the wisdom of this text and the beauty of this text and the one this text points us to and the invitation that he offers to come home from carrying all of our heavy burdens. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.